0: My name is Natalia Frodochak. I am a student project manager at the Clark Forum for Contemporary Issues. Today, I am joined by Fernando Sareleghi, who is an author, consultant, and restaurateur. Thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I thought we could start out with a question. For those who have not heard of your background in the food industry and with cultural exploration of traditional cuisine, could you just give a little background as to what your talk was about?
1: Essentially, it was how, through food, I learned about myself and my family's culture in sort of a backhanded way because it started by just remembering the food that i was fed as a child and then i slowly ended up in the restaurant business and my projects started to take the turn towards my heritage so and i'm basque and northern spain and cuban so there's a dish here and a dish there and then there was other opportunities where I could go down the Latino or Basque Cuban rabbit holes, and I I did, and then I'd come out and I'd be a little more influenced. And then as my career just evolved on its own, I started doing th- things outside of the restaurant business, where I was I wrote books, I did a children's show about their food sources, and that show was bilingual. So I just slowly but surely started to understand, but at the same time embrace myself as a cultural person, even though I grew up in like New York, you know, very waspy town that really had like, you know, no, none of that Latino thing. That's sort of the arc of how I ended up being very much involved now in every project I do is through the... Latino or Cuban or Basque lens.
0: And then what inspired you to work in the food industry?
1: It, it's funny. I wouldn't say it was inspiration. It became inspiration. So it, it sort of evolved. It was more, I was always um, a worker. I always liked to work. And I also always, sort of a Cuban and Basque trait is that we're social. And so I leaned toward into restaurants as a way to just make, the most money I could at a young age, unskilled money, you know. And then I quickly learned that bartenders made more than anybody else. So I learned how to bartend, and then before I knew it, everywhere I went, you know, I went to college, different colleges, and uh, and then after that, I would always be like, okay, where's you know, what's the best place in town? Go do the interviews, and I get so slowly but surely, I was just getting better and better places, and then. When I was in college, I worked at a restaurant called Chez Panisse, with, um, owned by a woman named Alice Waters, who's the mother of Farm to the Table Cuisine in California, and she was very, very dedicated. And I had no idea that the restaurant business could be so artful and so heartfelt, and that struck a chord, and then everything just started to fall in place, and that's how I ended up in the restaurant business. I pretty much knew by then... That's what I'd be doing. Plus, I studied art and architecture, and in my restaurants, I pretty much do everything from menu design to interior design, so to uniform design, the works. So, and that's what I do now, uh, part time as a consultant, mm-hmm. when I'm not doing like a book or whatever.
0: Okay. Um, And then your experiences with diverse cultural cuisines, uh, diverse cultures in general, how have those experiences informed your style as a consultant, as an author?
1: Um, I think a big part of it was growing up in New York and then having restaurants in New York City because there's no uh, more multicultural uh, city in the world, probably. Um, And so that, for me, is... A touchstone is like, I'm not afraid of other cultures, and I'm always interested in other cultures. And so I always bring that to the party. And at the same time, like most major cities in America, they all have a Latino population of some sort or another. For example, there's not a restaurant that I've ever worked in, except for maybe Chez Paris, that doesn't have Mexicans from a little town in Mexico called Puebla. And it it, I, it got to the point where I thought, like, God, is this place just one big culinary school? Because every single a restaurant had employees from Puebla. And so and then there's a thing in the restaurant business which is called family meal. So it's the meal that is given to all the employees and before service usually. Sometimes it's after service. And it's usually everybody in the kitchen is working on whatever that restaurant's menu is but then the family meal can be anything and often it's these guys from puebla and so they're doing their specialties I mean, like for example there's a co- really complex mexican sauce called mole and it has like 46 ingredients and when, if you buy it pre-made in the bottle it's horrible taste the real thing it's incredible and it's just like a lot of other dishes where there are as many different styles of mole as there are like grandmothers you know, everybody has their their tweak on it. So it's super unique. And so all of a sudden at family meal, you're starting to learn about this whole food that's not part of what every whatever your restaurant's concept was. It could be a French restaurant, but everybody's eating really indigenous Mexican. We're not talking tax-mex. we're not talking CalMex. And then that really speaks to your creativity, but also, you know, to your understanding of different cultures and, and And it influences you in your own work, no matter which cuisine or culture you're following, often in overt ways, but also often in ways that you're not even aware of, unconscious ways.
0: And you mentioned that you see New York as one of the last, or one of, or if not the last, multicultural city. And how does your work aim to address the erasure of cultural eating? in heavily urban areas and assimilated areas like New York City could be.
1: What do you mean, just to be clear, what do you mean by erasure of cultural leading?
0: And through assimilation, through the push to become Americanized uh, by, you know,
1: I think that's actually probably turning around. Like it's okay. less so. Okay. Yeah, I think people are embracing uh, multiculturalism mm-hmm. more. I mean, there, of course you're always fighting Uh, especially in the United States, you're always fighting against um, fast food Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and convenience food, like frozen food, and you know, I know TV dinners almost don't exist anymore, but TV dinners, Mm -hmm. you know, and so everybody's eating eating the same thing, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, I think people have really spread out and learned more. The whole Black Lives Matter movement had an interesting version of it in food, and in restaurants, mm-hmm. and there's whole idea of minority-owned, not just black, you know, people of color, and also women. Mm-hmm. And it's really become uber-dominant across the country and pushed by a lot of different foundations, including the James Beard Foundation, and have been fantastic with it, brought a lot of awareness. And all of a sudden, you have these minority people of color, uh, restaurateurs and cooks, who can get a loan and get their restaurant opened. And and because the press has been very friendly to it and really helped put the message out there, the average American is aware of it. Mm-hmm. You know? And so when they discover one of those restaurants in their community or traveling, they check it out. So I think it's actually the the compass is starting to point in the other direction. So it which is a good thing. But once again we're we're always gonna be fighting against, as I said, fast food and uh, uh, commercialized prepared food, you know, sure. corporate food.
0: Do you feel like COVID and quarantine has had an impact of that push towards embracing cultural eating?
1: Uh, I think it has, in that I think people had more time to like listen to podcasts, you mm-hmm. know, and, and and find out. And there's been a little more research going on. And at the same time, people had the time on their hands, like, you know, everybody's aware of the whole bread baking trend that happened during COVID. Mm-hmm. Well, it did take that and, you know, fill pull out bread and fill in the blank with the culture of your choice and like I'm gonna try to make that, I'm gonna try Indian cuisine, I'm gonna try to make it chutney. That kind of thing. I think that has happened as much as like the bread baking trend. And in a funny way, even though we were all in our you know, enclosed in our homes with ourselves, it opened us up to the possibility of others and otherness.
0: And how would you encourage people to reconnect with that otherness with their cultural food ways? and culinary practices if they live in areas that are more urbanized or assimilated maybe?
1: You know, once again, every, especially in the larger cities that I think you're referring to, Mm -hmm. um, they all have multicultural stores, Mm -hmm. grocery stores, and they're not necessarily the obvious choices. They're not as well known, but I think those have to be searched out. Mm Because often what people will stop people is uh, the ingredient search. Sure. And it, if you have access to it, then all of a sudden it, you know, it cracks open the door, and then you can dive in through that, that opportunity.
0: Sure. Okay. Um, and do you have any role models, or if you do, who do you consider to be your role models in the food industry and within the Latinx food industry or like uh, culinary experience specifically?
1: Uh, when I had uh, my second restaurant, which was was called El Rey, and it was Pan-Latin, but it, it was interesting because it was Latin through different influences because it was Louisiana, which does have some Latin influence, and it was Texas, which has obviously some Latin influence, and then it was Mexico, and it was Cuba. And with that project, I had all sorts of, all, almost all of my kitchen was Latino, and they would bring their culture to the party, and they really became my mentors, even though they're not necessarily mentors. Often you think of somebody who's famous or somebody who's uber successful, and I don't think that is necessary to be a mentor. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of my cooks or chefs were Peruvian, mm-hmm. and they taught me all sorts of stuff about Peruvian food. Where I'm like, oh, didn't know that. You know, let's try that. And then I say this like a broken record. But Alice Waters just keeps becoming my touchstone. And in, even though when I worked there as a college student, you know, for me, it was a gig. And slowly but surely, I learned and I got to know people who cared about the food and cared about the culture. And I realized it was all due to her as well as along with that sustainability and organics. I mean, I never even heard the word sustainable or, you know, holistic mm-hmm. until I worked at Shape Panisse. And to this day, I'm in touch with the community, with the Japanese community, and in both of my books, the prefaces were written by Alice Waters, so she uh, she probably doesn't even know this, <laughs> but yes, she's I look I look up to her as a mentor.
0: And then, do you find that you enjoy working in the restaurant industry more, consulting, or like with with books and travel guides more? Like, do you feel like one pursuit is more part of your identity than the other one?
1: I don't know if identity is the right way to put it, but as far as what interests me and where I'm heading, the, I mean, the restaurant business, you know, is famous for being brutal, and it, because it is, mm-hmm. but then there's certain people who skin the cat in a, in their own way, and once again, Alice Waters is like the perfect example because this place is, I mean, it's aesthetics and beautiful and integrity at every single turn, like the whole dining room is. Redwood built by these two brothers who were expert Japanese carpenters. The, the dining room is just gorgeous, and then it's an open kitchen, and you realize they didn't stop, like a lot of restaurants, stop at the dining room door to the kitchen and then industrialize it. It's gorgeous. It looks like a French kitchen. It has an unbelievable, you know, one of the first live fire spits, and you know, there's a the whole animal rotating on that. So that was a really beautiful... And I totally commend her for really creating a restaurant that was livable in so many ways for all the employees. And not only and beyond livable, it was inspiring. But that isn't the rule. And especially after the pandemic and, and because of the economics, it just becomes tougher and tougher. Um, and it definitely, as they say, it's a young man's game. Uh, and then I've always had... Um, it probably because I was a theater major. So I've always had this, like, and my family's in media. So I've always thought in those terms as well. And it, so as I evolve and get older, I, I'm i involved in more of those kind of projects. And I find them as satisfying and, and a, 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 little less, a little less sweaty. Um, it's like the writing of books. I'm working on this thing called Farm to Business, which is basically bringing the concepts behind farm, the table cooking to corporate governance. And, uh, like, that's like super exciting to me, but at the same time, I have uh, another idea, which is to talk to the people who make uh, Airstream trailers and to deck one out with a full kitchen and take it around the country as an Airstream marketing idea. But what we would do is as we got to every part of the country, we would come up with a dinner, kind of like the gather dinner that we do here at Dickinson. And it, but it would be that area of the country's regional cuisine. And then we would open up that dinner to the whole community. The, then the next episode, because I, I do see it as television. So I, I'm sort of always seeing things now as content. And, um, it's a lot more fun. And for me, it brings together, uh, all, once again, my background is in theater, so uh, I can, it brings together more creativity and more. In the restaurant business, when you open a restaurant, it's like super creative on every front going in, and then on in the kitchen, in the menu, especially if you have a revolving menu, you get to keep that alive. But the restaurant's pretty static; it is what it is. You know, you, you've already designed it, mm-hmm. and you can maintain it, which is super important. But with the with these other projects, all of it is constantly creative. And that is what that's my lifeblood.
0: And then I'm curious about your process for writing travel guides and like food guides. Um, how do you kind of like organize the experiences that you have like when you visited Cuba like on paper?
1: It's funny because I I come as I said from a media family and I'm probably, you know, the last writer of the group. Um And so I post it step by step uh, very much, but I I tend to outline like of general ideas of like why I want to do it and what excites me. And then I'll pick the easy ones first. Like what, you know, what do I have an anecdote about or a story about? And then they might have like guts, which are, for example, in a cookbook would be recipes. Mm -hmm. And then I'll let the recipes talk to the anecdotes and that'll bring other thoughts. because I, I try to write projects that are not like the cookbook is about my family, but we it has anecdotes, and it's also seasonally through a year. And so, I, I tell those stories about how our family treats those holidays, um, for example. And then each dish will speak to me, and I bring up a memory, and then I'll tell that story. So the book, a lot of people love that book because they see it as something you can, it is a cookbook officially, but they see it as something you can read as a story. And so that's how I look at the cookbook. And then the travel guide was once again, it started, there was this restaurants that came up in oh, what, 30 years ago, 20 years ago in Havana called Paladares, which means palette in Spanish. And I was fascinated that these people with the tough under the toughest circumstances were making incredibly dynamic restaurants and incredible food. I mean, they couldn't even get product and they were doing it. So I was very impressed. So I started by wanting to tell their stories. And then I would talk to my mom about, you know, the restaurant scene in Cuba back in her day before the Castro regime and want to tell those stories. And through that there were other family stories. And so it all of a sudden and then I wanted in that particular project, I love photography and I wanted to do all the photography. So I shot the whole book and going through I love editing, so going through the editing process, and all of it came together as a sort of a collage. Mm-hmm. And it once again, like the cookbook, it's I feel it's something that you can read cover to cover.
0: I'm also curious about during your time in Cuba. And just like researching your heritage and your cultural roots, did you discover anything that surprised you about your background or culture eating in those places?
1: I don't necessarily think surprised. I mean, the thing about Havana was I hadn't been there since I was one, mm-hmm. and I went when I was, the first time I went, I was 52. Mm-hmm. So that's a heck of a long time. Mm-hmm. And for me, what it was, um, First of all, it's just hearing my mom was with us and just hearing all the stories firsthand with her. I mean I'm so glad I had the opportunity to see it so every story I'd heard my whole life was coming to i could see it now more realistically, and that was a, its i don't know if i' if surprised the word I would use, but i was I was just overwhelmed that the of the realness of it, but it also taught me about what what Cuba and Havana have lost mm-hmm. through this regime.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then there's a, a huge part of for the Cubans of resiliency. Mm-hmm. And then once again, when we were saying the restaurant business is tough, these guys have nothing, the restaurant business is tough. And some of them are doing incredible work, and that surprised me completely. You know, In the Basque country in Spain, when I went to visit, and I was going to what they call the, the tapas bars, mm-hmm that it was something that what surprised me there was how at home I felt. And all of a sudden I felt like, you know, this is going to sound cliche, but I felt like, you know, these are my people. Yeah. You know, it's like it, it's and it's where my literally my whole bloodline is from there. Yeah. And uh, and and you realize there's some there's some truth to um a place. And so you're told it growing up, and you, in your name, you know, my last name is Saralegi golea. Yeah, I know I got this strange last name, strange by a waspy American point of view. And then you get there and you meet other Saralegis. And it's like, I'm like, okay, this is crazy. And then you find, after the shock, yeah. you just start, you know, going with the flow and you realize how much it is part of you. And then you bring it with you wherever you go. Mm-hmm. Just like, once again, to quote Ernest Hemingway, "It's a movable feast."
0: Do you see yourself in the future going forward revisiting kind of Basque, Cuba, and those cultural experiences in other books or media projects?
1: The when it comes to the Basque country, there, it's funny because our family is from actually across northern mm-hmm. Spain. It's um, the Basque country. Next, the next province is called Asturias, mm-hmm. and then the next one is called Galicia. Yeah, and um, I want to. Just work more on that whole that whole range, and I mean, just yesterday I was talking to someone who had been to Asturias, and they're like, "Now that is the place to go." He goes, "Whenever I want to just escape, because it's a really funny little region where incredibly has tons of organic and wealth, and as far as creative food, and it's on the sea, right? Like every Spaniard would tell you, like." That's a go-to, but it's essentially almost unknown worldwide. So that when you go there, there's no, there's no, there's not that much tourism from outside of Spain, but it's sort of, it's a hidden gem. And so I really want to go back and I've never been, so it go to Asturias and then also go to Galicia because my, one of my grandmother's family was from Galicia and so I know it through just sort of like Cuba where I know it through stories. And I sort of want to put, you know, as I say, a face to a name. And I, I think, uh, you know, basically, I could see myself writing something about that. Uh, although the other, the more tangible, concrete idea that I, I you know, it, it's there somewhere. We'll see. Is uh, is to go to the Basque country, and I have a lot of friends in the wine industry who have a lot of connections in that area as well, including Mark Aldridge, who teaches here at Dickinson and is to go to a town like San Sebastian, which has more Michelin stars than any in other community in the world, and basically do staging, which basically means you're interning at restaurants uh, for a short time, and is to go from one tapas place to the next, you know, and intern for a month at a time for a year, and write that book. Yeah. So which it would be very much like the first book where it's like recipes, but then it's like who I met, what's the story about this place, and then also everything that happened in between. I think that'd be a really beautiful book, uh, useful book, and fun book.
0: Well, this concludes our interview. Thank you so much. On behalf of the Clark Forum, thank you again for sitting down and having this conversation with me.
1: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure, and thank you to the Clark Forum for bringing me to Dickinson. It's a, a very a community I'm very happy to have uh, gotten the note.